Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled The Miracle at Cana, A Whole Lot of Strong Wine, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 14, 2007. When I moved to Moscow State University on September 7, 1991 to serve as a visiting professor, our family of five lived in two tiny dorm rooms. Our baby Megan was eight weeks old. One of seven massive Gothic buildings built in Moscow under Stalin, the university sits atop a hill overlooking the Moscow River and the 1980 Olympic Stadium. For our first five months, we lived on the sixth floor in Sector G, or as the students joked with Macrobur humor of Gulag terminology, Zona G. Down the hallway from us lived a striking Nigerian couple. We marveled at their fluent Russian, and we envied their telephone. Io and Fadike must have sensed our culture shock and social, social isolation in those first few weeks, for they invited us to join them at a Nigerian wedding in downtown Moscow. Flashing lights, fine foods, throbbing music, colorful clothing, spontaneous laughter, and untrammeled joy characterized that evening. As the bride and groom danced, we guests circled round them, and in an outrageous tradition of extravagance, we began to throw money at them. Ruble notes went flying everywhere, across the floor, in the air, and into their pockets. As the couple perspired, people even pasted bills to their foreheads. Everyone roared with delight especially when our two young sons began stuffing bills into their own pockets. Weddings loom large in scripture. Isaiah compared Israel's future joy to a marriage celebration. We read in Isaiah 62 verse 5, As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. In the Gospels, marriages figure prominently as metaphors for God's kingdom. We read, for example, that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son, only to have people RSVP with lame excuses why they couldn't attend. The parable of the ten bridesmaids urges us to remain vigilant at life-changing moments like a wedding. Life in God's kingdom somehow mirrors wedding etiquette according to Luke 14. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, we read, don't take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And in his vision of the final consummation of human history, John imagined a great wedding feast between the Lamb of God and his bride. So it comes as no surprise when in the Gospel for this week, John says that Jesus did many miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, but the very first one was at a wedding at Cana in Galilee. 
about nine miles northwest of his hometown in Nazareth. To the chagrin of the host, the wedding wine ran dry. With his mother Mary and his disciples present, Jesus filled six stone pots used by the Jews for ritual washings with water. They had been empty. And then he turned the water into wine. A lot of wine. Good wine. The miracle bespeaks both quantity and quality. Each pot held 20 to 30 gallons, so the result was some 150 gallons of wine, far beyond what the revelers needed. There's an inverse ratio between the trivial matter of running out of wine at a wedding and the excessive abundance that resulted. Further, whereas most hosts serve the best wine first when people can taste the quality, and cheaper wine later when no one can tell the difference, Jesus reversed the pattern. He saved the best for last. Clearly, the God that Jesus revealed is a God of lavish liberality, generosity, and extravagance. I've never witnessed a miracle, but I've often wondered how I would respond if I thought I did. John recorded the many miraculous signs of Jesus in order to elicit faith in those who heard about them, even if they hadn't witnessed them firsthand. John 20, verses 30 to 31 read, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That, in fact, is what happened at Cana when he turned the water into wine. We read that the disciples put their faith in him. But I can easily imagine myself falling into some crude superstition, becoming a gawker at a spectacle, or disbelieving the miracle and the miracle maker like those whom John describes in chapter 12, verse 37. The early church rejected many fables about Jesus as spurious, such as the infancy gospel of Thomas, in which Jesus curses a playground bully who consequently dies, then raises him to life with a spontaneous wish sort of prayer. He also turns clay pots into flying birds. The early believers weren't gullible and naive when it came to sensationalist exaggerations about miracle stories. They exercise reticence and restraint. They witness to how the miracles of Jesus stirred controversy, division, disbelief, and sometimes even authentic faith. When some people asked Jesus to perform a miracle, he rebuked them for even asking. He said that if they really wanted to believe, there was more than enough evidence. Matthew 12, 38 and 39. A few pages after the first miracle at Cana, Jesus responded brusquely to a Gentile military officer who begged Jesus to heal his son. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe, he said. Then he healed the boy anyhow, John 4, 43 and 44. Even false prophets, Jesus warned, could perform miraculous signs. Matthew 24, verse 24. 
Jesus was not some ancient David Blaine, some street magician doing tricks to astound curiosity seekers. Nor were his miracles merely missions of mercy or demonstrations of God's compassion for human suffering, although they were at least that. Rather, to understand his miracles rightly meant to exercise faith in he who had performed them. His signs, wonders, works, and healings forced a decision one way or the other. We read in John chapter 10 and chapter 14, Believe the miracles that you may learn and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. At the wedding in Cana, Jesus filled and fulfilled the ancient promises of Judaism. He filled the empty water pots used for ritual purity with copious amounts of rich wine used for human celebration. He didn't merely announce a coming reign of God, nor did he direct attention away from himself to some other. With the first of his many miraculous signs, he demonstrated that somehow and in some unsurpassed manner, he revealed the glory and character of Yahweh like no other. He invited people to drink his wine. Contrary to our contemporary hubris and condescension to people of the past, that's no more of a scandal today than it was back then. To be sure, it was and is very strong wine indeed. And now for further reflection. Have you ever witnessed a miracle? How did you respond? Consider common responses to reputed miracles like extreme gullibility on the one hand, or so-called scientific disbelief on the other hand. Why, according to the Gospels, are miracles unable to guarantee a response of genuine faith? Fourth, do you think that witnessing a miracle would strengthen your faith? Why or why not? And finally, for further reflection, see the wonderful little book called Ministry and the Miraculous, a case study at Fuller Theological Seminary, 1992, by Lewis Smeads. My book review this week reviews the new faces of Christianity, Believing the Bible in the Global South, by Philip Jenkins. New York, Oxford University Press, 2006, 252 pages. In this sequel to his earlier volume, The Next Christendom, Penn State professor Philip Jenkins shows how the majority of Christians in the world read the Bible with an authenticity, immediacy, and primitiveness that readers in the mainly white rich North American context would find strange and even naive. 
Most readers of the Bible, Jenkins reminds us, see things not as they are, but as we are. That is, our reading and hearing of Scripture originates from our own personal and social context. Ordinary poor Christians in Latin America, Asia, and Africa know all too well about corrupt states, famine, unending war, ethnic strife, brutal repression, crushing debt, and grinding poverty. And so they hear these themes of Scripture as directly relevant to their daily lives. Healing, liberation, dreams, visions, miracles, and prophecies are all lived realities rather than deconstructed myths for these Christians. After two introductory chapters, Jenkins shows how the Old Testament in particular resonates with these believers because of its themes of nomadic existence, tribalisms, animal sacrifice, paganism, agrarian economies, and polygamy. He then devotes individual chapters to the themes of rich and poor, good and evil, persecution and vindication, and then the role of women and men. A final chapter compares and contrasts how Christians in the global south and in the wealthy north read scripture. He explores what a truly authentic reading of the Bible might look like, and what might one dismiss as cultural baggage in both text and interpreter. Jenkins is not uncritical of the way global southerners read the Bible, but in both tone and content, his own reading of the global south exudes admiration and even gratitude. Clearly, and I think he's right on this point, Jenkins thinks that sophisticated northern elites, jaded by secular and scientific worldviews, can learn from our sisters and brothers in the global south. One special strength of this book is that Jenkins quotes copiously from third world theologians, both women and men, and incorporates true life stories into his narrative. So he lets these ordinary believers, and not just the scholars, speak for themselves. We ought to listen to them too, for as Jenkins documented in his last book, The Next Christendom, Christianity's center of gravity has already shifted from Europe and North America to Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Already, to take just one example, Two-thirds of Roman Catholics live in the global south. This book ought to be required reading for any believer from the so-called first world who cares about or lives in the two-thirds world, or all those who truly believe that the spirit of the living God speaks today in the Catholicity of the saints. Philip Jenkins the New Faces of Christianity, Believing the Bible in the Global South. For film this week, I review 24 Hours on Craigslist from the year 2005. Do you need to find a support group for your diabetic cat? 
Are you searching for limited editions of Dr. Seuss prints? Do you want to join a so-called flash mob? Are you looking for an apartment, a heavy metal chef, or some football tickets? For all this and much, much more, just go to craigslist.org. What carries this otherwise mediocre documentary film is its fascinating subject matter. The entire film is little more than interviews with people who wax eloquent about how and why they use Craigslist. They're not alone. With 3 billion page views and 15 million users per month, 50 million user postings in 100 discussion forums, Craigslist is clearly much more than a place to buy and sell. It's a form of entertainment and a means for social connection. Many of these people are entirely normal, but many others in this film are just weird, and some of them would appear strange, to say the least. The film includes people that should have been omitted, and is needlessly coy about the identity of Craig. Nor do you learn much about the basic history of Craigslist. For the record, Craig Newmark founded the organization in 1995 in San Francisco. Today, Craigslist services 450 cities in 50 countries. In 1990, Craigslist incorporated as a for-profit, and today eBay owns about 25%. But that statement might be very misleading. The current CEO of Craigslist, Jim Buckmaster, has been called an anarchist and communist for his steadfast refusal to so-called monetize the site. He runs the company with a staff of two dozen people, and their business model, such that it is, charges $25 for job ads in only seven cities, and $10 for brokered apartments in New York City. Otherwise, Craigslist revels in, in its open source software and philanthropic esprit. 24 hours on Craigslist. For poetry this week, we've posted a poem by George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633. The title of the poem is Colossians 3, 3. Our life is hid with Christ in God. My words and thoughts do both express this notion that life hath with the sun a double motion. The first is straight in our diurnal friend, the other hid and doth obliquely bend. One life is wrapped in flesh and tends to earth, the other winds towards him whose happy birth taught me to live here so that still one eye should aim and shoot at that which is on high. Quitting with daily labor all my pleasure to gain at harvest an eternal treasure. Our Life is Hid with Christ in God by George Herbert. Thank you for joining Journey with Jesus. Dot net for Sunday, January 14th.
2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.